Like all men of the library, I have traveled in my youth. I have journeyed in search of a book, perhaps of the catalog of catalogs. Now that my eyes can scarcely decipher what I write, I am preparing to die a few leagues from the hexagon in which I was born. Once dead, there will not lack pious hands to hurl me over the banister. My sepulchre shall be the unfathomable air. My body will sink lengthily and will corrupt and dissolve in the wind engendered by the fall, which is infinite. I affirm that the library is interminable. Let it suffice me for the time being to repeat the classic dictum. The library is a sphere whose consummate center is any hexagon and whose circumference is inaccessible. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I am Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're glad to have you back, listeners, as we near the home stretch of season two on Middlemarch. Um, this is our second to last episode. We're glad to have you along. Uh, a, a few notes of business before we launch into the episode. As always, you can reach us on social media. We're on Twitter at the Readers K. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can download us directly on our Podbean site, thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. And you can always send us an email, thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. We do love getting listener feedback. We're very glad you've joined us tonight. We are, as we said, getting very close to the end of Season two, we're wrapping up our discussion of Middlemarch and books related to Middlemarch. We've gone through a wide range of texts, and here we are getting near the end. This is the second to last episode on what we're calling Beyond Realism, texts that we think are in interesting conversation with Middlemarch in terms of their style and their form, and maybe incorporating some elements of that form, the 19th century realist novel, but then kind of pushing beyond it in some interesting ways. We're going to get pretty far afield from that tonight. This is uh, my last pick of the season. I'm very glad to have picked these two stories. We're kind of diverging a little bit. Instead of a novel, we're reading two short stories by the same author. These are short stories by the Argentinian author Jorge Luis Borges. And uh, they, these are his short stories, Pierre Menard, the author of Don Quixote and The Library of Babel. And as always, I'm going to give you a quick summary of both of these stories. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about why I chose them. And then we'll kind of launch into our discussion. It's kind of been a running joke on here that this season, the texts have become increasingly difficult to summarize in a quick manner. And I think we're going to reach maybe the ultimate apex next time with our final (laughs) book. But these two stories do present me with a particular challenge. The first story, Pierre Menard, the author of Don Quixote, is challenging to describe because it's a short story, question mark. It's kind of hard to figure out what it is. It's written as a piece of literary criticism by ostensibly Borges himself or Borges' author stand-in. And it's about a man named Pierre Menard, who is a sort of failed French author 
who decides, among the many other small things he's done with his life, that his grand project is going to be to write Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. He rejects the easy way to do that, which is just to simply like copy out the text line by line. Instead, what he's going to try to do is channel his life experiences to write it over again from essentially from memory with no reference back to Cervantes's text. And as the, the commentator assures us, what ends up being produced is much richer and finer than anything Cervantes could have done. It's a masterwork, even though there's only a couple of chapters done by the time Pierre Menard dies. It's a very strange story. Is it a story? I don't know. Yes, I guess so. Um, but we're going to talk about it. The other one is no less strange, The Library of Babel. Again, not really a story or, or not much of a plot going on. It's a description of the library, which is a sort of metonym for the universe or something. It's a, li- a grand library in which is contained every possible book that could be written, every combination of the 25 letters of this alphabet that are there for Borges or, or Borges's author stand. And again, there are men who live in the library as sort of hermits, basically, in the stacks, right? Living the, I guess, the grad school life there. And they try desperately to take a measure of what the library is like, but they can't do it because there's so much richness to the infiniteness. So there's contained in it, there are books that are catalogs of the library, including thousands of false catalogs and somewhere the one true catalog of the entire contents. There are books that are just a single letter repeated ad infinitum. There are, right, all these different strange books. And so the, the narrator takes us through kind of visually through some parts of the library, but also through a history of how the library has operated over time. As you can tell from those descriptions, these are not traditional stories um, in, in any easy to grasp sense of the word, but they are fictional. They're not real, you know, in that sense, they're not non-fiction reports on things. They're fictional attempts to get at some kind of big ideas, ideas about infinity, ideas about what it means to produce a text, to write something, what it means to read a text. There's a lot of richness buried in there. So so we're going to start, I think, with Pierre Menard, blend our way into the library babble, but maybe talk about them simultaneously to some degree because they go along with each other quite well. Really quickly, though, I just want to talk about why I picked these texts. First and foremost, I think, as is always the case on here, we pick texts that we love. And Borges has been an author for me that I've come back to repeatedly since I first discovered him. He's an author primarily of short stories, but they are, I guess you would say, like, mind-bending, right? They make, like, The Matrix look like Driving Miss Daisy or something, right? They're they're stories that are warped in these very weird ways um they're kind of sci-fi a lot of them or they have a science fiction flavor to them some of them have a fantasy flavor to them um he's writing pretty early on for this label to be applied but maybe sometimes you might think of him in conversation with something like postmodernism. there's a lot of meta elements to his writing so stories about stories those sorts of things he's writing you know in the the 1930s and 1940s He's certainly kind of coming out of the moment of Franz Kafka, who he's in conversation with to some degree, but his stories are maybe even weirder than Kafka's in some ways. Maybe not quite as dark as Kafka's are, but but very strange, and they tend to bend in on themselves. The other reasons I chose them, though, I think that they do, even though they're very distant from Middlemarch in some ways, I think they connect on certain levels. I, I think hearkening back to our first round of texts after we read Middlemarch, these are stories that are interested in 
um, something like a totality. You know, we talked about the key to all mythologies that Casaban works on in, in Middlemarch. They are stories that try to take in the totality of the universe in some way and can only do that in fragments as they sort of recognize. So, th- so there, there are stories about totality in a lot of ways. And I think that, that he fits in very well there. There are stories that are interested in, in the past in a lot of ways, in reading and writing about the past. He has, not in these stories per se, but in some other stories, he's very interested in things like ancient Christian heresies and all sorts of strange kind of paths not taken in history. So there's an there's that element of sort of Middlemarchian conversation with the past and what might have been instead of what has, in fact, come about. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of connection there. And then he, he's, a, he's a writer who writes in a lot of ways in a slightly, kind of a slightly archaic style. He sounds old-fashioned, even as he's writing these stories that are very cutting-edge for the time that he's writing him. Not like somebody like Lovecraft, who sort of feels like a you know like a, a gothic horror novel or something, but but uh, something of that element of a of a realist approach to the way that language is used, and a delicacy to the language and a complexity to the sentence structure, things that feel like they are harkening back in some ways to the 19th century, even as he's pushing forward even beyond his time. So I think those are some reasons that I really like Borges and like thinking about Borges in the context of a season on Middlemarch, even though they might seem like very different sorts of texts. I think there's a a nice kind of connection between them in some important ways. So let's start talking about Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. And I guess the easiest place to start would just be to to think about like, what exactly is this text? What do you all make of it as a story? What is it trying to do? What is it trying to accomplish? Not even just what it is, but why it is. Why did? Why do you think Borges decided, okay, I'm going to write a, a story that's a piece of literary criticism about an imaginary text that doesn't exist? I love what you're saying there, Soren. I think there's so many connections here between Middlemarch in spite of the fact that on its surface, a story about a non-existent story, it's sort of a paradoxical self-definition there that Borges, like Kafka, is very interested in paradoxes and pushing things into a full kind of contradiction of themselves. But this idea of Menard and his writerly attempt to rewrite a book someone else has written many years later is this task that it might seem absurd, but Borges kind of uses his like intellectual powers to push us beyond that absurdity into something else that makes it um, sort of pretty philosophically interesting. And he goes on to say that Menard ignores and overlooks or banishes local color in his reimagining and writing of Quixote. That disdain posits a new meaning for the historical novel. That disdain condemns Salambo with no possibility of appeal. And so we're reminded there, I think, of Flaubert, right? And so Flaubert's language too reminds me of kind of what you're hitting on with respect to Borges's language it's extremely ornate but yeah unlike Lovecraft's ornateness there's something really historically rooted and it's really just thousands of uh, fragments of history almost in these 10 pages of this story pushed together and like heated in some kiln or something until we (laughs) get something new until it all just is like some one weird perfect shape like a mobius strip or something but when you look at it sort of under a microscope it's like hundreds of references to other novelists and other writers and the history of french symbolism and specific 
parts of Quixote and philosophers and different texts, uh, most of which are real texts. So this fiction kind of born from another person's fiction, Borges is arguing, there's a way to push that so that it is far more historical than we would have thought. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting connection to Middlemarch. Where do where do like these attempts to create a total system or a key to something lead us totally into fantasy or lead us back down into a very sort of particular history? To sort of start answering Soren's question and then to pick up on, on what Carl's laying down to, I, I love the, the erudition of Borges and it's so layered. It's sort of like the last footnote of the Library of Babel in which they're speculating that in fact perhaps it could all, all existence could be contained in one book in which it's an infinite number of slim pages and there's no central page because these onion skin Bible pages are infinite. It's like reading something like that where there's all of this layered reference that seems effortless and that gives such a a sort of realist depth to it uh, that you do believe you're reading a literary critic who's writing about an actual author performing an actual project art project of some sort one d- distinction i think that he makes in what menard's doing versus what we might imagine it is when we first hear um soren's description too i think is important so soren pointed out that he's not just transcribing quixote but nor nor is he trying to become Miguel de Cervantes. He's not trying to imagine what it would be like to be in his time. Borges writes, the initial method he conceived was relatively simple to know Spanish well, to re-embrace the Catholic faith, to fight against Moors and Turks, to forget European history between 1602 and 1918, and to be Miguel de Cervantes. And then he says he studied that, but eventually decided that that would be the least interesting way to go about producing Don Quixote. And to do it, he would have to in a more interesting way, he would have to to do it as himself as Pierre Bernard. And I love what that's bringing us to for the rest of the story as a question of like, what if you produced something of genius? I know Barth has, has written on this short story and said like, what if you produced Beethoven in, in 1960, whatever? It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Like to have done that. Too much has happened since then that if you wrote like those symphonies now, they would be seen as kind of passe in some way, right? And Borges is sort of, maybe I would say, like I I see Carl's cringing at that. I think Borges would also kind of say, actually, there is something to that. that It's just that everything is now, like by doing that is layered with like a level of irony because of the creator of it in their period. And pointing that out is is interesting. I I like where you're you're taking us, Friedrich. Um, It makes me think about, so right around the time that Borges is writing this, there's a really fascinating British intellectual historian whose name is R.G. Collingwood. And he's exploring ideas about what it means to be an intellectual historian. And um, in his book, The Idea of History, he basically lays out the idea that the goal of the historian is to enter in as best as he or she can into the mind of the historical figure to sort of, in the words of of uh, Dana Carvey in The Master of Disguise, to become another person, no. right, as best as possible, right, to enter into that mind as best you can. And you're right here that Borges is sort of toying with that idea and then rejecting it, right, as somehow not sufficient for the task. And maybe this is like a line between literature and history then, right? In history, our goal is to sort of fully recapture that past. But in literature, it's a different task. We can't do that to some extent. And so we have to move forward with it somehow. 
Am I not? Am I not Talon enough for the Talon Club? Oh, oh my God, stop! Please, this, um, that might be one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my. I've whole watched life. that movie with the director's commentary on. So check oh, please. me, please, 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 please. I like what you're saying, minus this Master of Disguise reference, it's, which is the Master of Disguise reference stays. Am I not turtly enough for the Turtle Club? Turtle, turtle. <laughs> As does this digression. You know, I think that that's that's something that Borges is kind of lighting on is like there's this temptation mm-hmm. to want to become the past somehow as we're as certainly as Menard is writing this to fully become Cervantes somehow through a historiographical study. But then he realizes that that's not adequate to the task of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to become Cervantes and write Don Quixote. I'm trying to be Pierre Menard and write Don Quixote. And so there's this wonderful... Mm-hmm tension that exists in the story between these sort of false methods of doing it and the true method that he's hit on which is to be himself and just write it again yeah i think i think i read some collingwood in a class on aesthetics and i could be wrong but i i'm attributing to him this idea that like there is no pure originality and i think that's part of where we start in the in pierre menard right every idea is in some way connected to something else on the one hand whatever music you write those notes or that instrument came from somewhere else right they were they were put in a certain pattern by somebody else before that's pretty similar to that similarly obviously the words that you use if you write something came from somewhere else um, there's this kind of inextricable history to everything you're trying to create so in one sense there's no perfectly pure and abstract originality and then on the other hand uh, we can't ever fully become someone else when we read fiction or we uh, watch a movie or a play we can't purely become literally sympathetic with them and actually feel exactly what they feel so what makes this story really interesting is Borges kind of takes that as a bit of like a challenge right Mm. and a bit of a reason to go on a certain kind of quest without taking any steps how can you as a person go on a quest and be a great adventurer just in terms of trying to understand another situation or another person that's part of why for Pierre Menard it's not Cervantes it's not some kind of hero worship it's not some kind of glorification of Quixote right Mm -hmm. and it really it really comes to a head for me where um, he says every man should be capable of all ideas and i believe that in the future he shall be (laughs) right yes and so it's this sense of like at some point in the future 2001 a space odyssey will get the obelisk can go anywhere at any time and see all of time and everyone will understand all people in all times from within somehow and this is he's like the first great explorer in this new kind of exploration and so I like it as a as a trick to rethink this seemingly silly attempt to write a book without to kind of do it the wrong way on purpose. I uh I like what you're saying too about it as a sort of individual artistic or intellectual or just spiritual goal of a person to do that because that's not a way I usually think about Borges, but I think it's actually really useful to think of him in that way. Um Carl you're saying, you know, the sort of age-old 
saying that there's nothing new under the sun is being readdressed here. And, in that, and that comes up in Library of Babel as well, after this sort of parenthetical, not a diatribe, I don't know, something by the author. He writes, Methodical writing distracts me from the present condition of men, but the certainty that everything has been already written nullifies or makes phantoms of us all. And here we have another narrator who's dealing with the possibility that and, and may, or the reality in that story that everything exists already. And so what do you do now? And thinking about Menard in terms of like someone who is doing this as an artistic goal for himself because everything else is already, like, that, that makes it more emulable and valuable to me. And it reminds me a little bit of other books that we've read, like Candide or something that you're ultimately just trying to cultivate yourself in that passage that you read from Pierre Menard in that same paragraph, it begins to think, analyze, and invent are not anomalous acts, but the normal respiration of the intelligence. And it seems like that's an exercise in respiration and just trying to get your brain to actually breathe and not to be paralyzed by everything that's come before it. Yeah, and if I can jump back for a second to, to something that Carl said before that I think is important for this act of self-cultivation that you're taking us to, Friedrich, because for Menard... As, as the Borges or the author character notes, right? Part of the reason he chose Don Quixote is because it's not a text that he reveres. He thinks, which is mm-hmm. a, a pretty funny statement to make about, you know, the seminal Western novel, like the, the, the fountainhead of all subsequent Western novels to say like, history could exist without this book, but you know, what's really great is Edgar Allan Poe, right? It's like, he could not do it with Edgar Allan Poe because Poe's too important. And this like Cervantes, okay, whatever. Yeah, we can do it with this, which I think has got to be a kind of a, a little bit of a joke in the text, but a very well, but a funny one. I think one. Borges means that seriously you think about so? Poe though. I mean, I, as Poe is too. important. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. Well, well, and especially for the French symbolists who Menard is like founding and taking ahead of, I mean, Poe literally was weirdly enough, the English fountainhead for French symbolism. Right. Like a lot of them read him and translated him and found him to be amazing. And like Poe's style too is in this Poe, Borges, Nabokov. They're really going for Flaubert. They're really going for all out ornate Baroque purple prose, you know, and like they're some of the ones who I think, you know, really pull it off very well. But I think that, I think part of the joke that you're hitting on that's totally right too is like, um, you know, you're a Spanish language author and you're taking down <laughs> Quixote as saying, it, it, that's an obvious joke. Obviously, he doesn't think that about Cervantes and Don Quixote. But to have someone as kind of an upstart who makes that, he's he's toying with this. And I like that Borges does this a lot too. He, he switches our valence for the character very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it works really well in his short stories to have us oh, this is kind of a hero, uh, intellectually heroic act to write this. But wait, this guy doesn't even think Quixote is good. Like, mm-hmm. Maybe he's a total fool. Yeah. And then we get this list of his things that he's he's writing, and some of them are maybe amazing, and some of them are just kind of like ridiculous or boring or obviously the things that are rather like pedantic or average <laughs> overly scholastic writer would write you know and he's making fun of himself there too yeah i I like that a lot and i I think you're right there that part of what's going on is there's a sort of defense of the eccentricity of literary judgment going on here which is really wonderful like and Mm -hmm. i I always find that refreshing you read an author that you really admire and then 
you try to figure out who they read and it's like, okay, here are these standard authors. And then like, here's some complete random weirdo, right? Who's like, does not belong on this list at all. I think about this a lot. One of my favorite like random factoids is the French um, film director, Robert Brasson, who's like, style is so stripped down. It's so like plain and weird and like, just like very anti-cinematic in some ways. Loved the Roger Moore, James Bond films. He loved them. He would just go watch them. He thought they were the greatest thing. And it's like, you're Robert Brisson. You're like making, you know, Ahuzard Balthazar where like nothing happens and it's so slow paced and like really wonderful, but really off the beaten path. And then you're watching Roger Moore like jump on skis and like seduce women. <laughs> it's like, this is what I like. This is cinema right here. You know, it's a, it's that wonderful eccentricity that sometimes um, attends to great genius, right? It's it's like you're not reading exactly the same things that everybody else is reading or you're not watching the same things, right? There's You have that sort of base in the standards, but then there's also a little bit of eccentricity. And so, yeah, why not, Pierre Menard? Like Cervantes, I could take him or leave him. That's why I'm going to write about him, right? There's a, there's a sort of wonderful eccentricity to that literary judgment that makes it more appealing, I think. Can we talk about one of the strangest claims in this text, which I think is really wonderful? It's this. Near the end, so so the author has been taking us through kind of the, the, the historical background to the writing of this text. And then he takes us through and he, he tells us, like, okay, he only got a couple of chapters done before he died. And these chapters are, they're right. They're word for, they're exactly the same as Cervantes's chapters. He, he managed to pull it out of himself somehow, word for word. But despite the fact that they are exactly the same... Menards are better because he wrote them as Pierre Menard and not as Miguel de Cervantes. And so there's this like it's it's just such a strange claim that he makes, right? That in fact it is better to be Pierre Menard writing Don Quixote than it is to be Miguel de Cervantes because of the change of time. Because to write as Cervantes does in 16th century Spain, it's just it's there. Right, but to write like that in 20th century France, after everything has happened, like that's the real accomplishment. It's such a bizarre claim, and I wonder what you make of that here. Like, what does he mean when he says this? And what? And are we? Is it a claim we're supposed to take seriously? Is it another joke? I mean, I'm inclined to take it seriously in some sense. What, what do you all think about this claim that the writing itself, even though it's identical, is not identical in terms of its meaning because of the context in which it was written? There are a few ways to think about it. I think from Borges' standpoint, it makes a certain amount of sense. And I don't think he's necessarily saying that Menard is, at least he's not unironically saying that Menard is like, therefore, absolutely greater than Cervantes. But it's a bit like, I don't know if this is exactly true, but I, I heard it somewhere in I believe it's true whether or not it is at that at the large hadron collider apparently to understand all of the data that they get from certain particles being shot at each other and trying to decipher what in fact happened there are whole like computers devoted to like canceling out information that's read from what happened because there's just so much data involved in one test that to get to what you're actually looking for requires that the true act of processing is like deletion. And I think that's kind of what Borges is saying we ought to take as a certain kind of artistry is the ability for Menard to delete centuries of different ways of being a person from himself 
in order to be something else from before. And so like that kind of pairing away is the extra stuff in the creative act. So like when you look at the kind of amount of negative space that has to go around this same words, uh, that's what makes it bigger in some way or more work and perhaps better work in one kind of aesthetic judgment. And I think in acting, we kind of think of this all the time, right? Somebody, either who's a professional actor or who's just kind of good at like making fun of things, makes fun of someone or caricatures someone. Perhaps Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live with Herbert Walker Bush or whatever. And he's not gonna die or whatever he did. Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. And then the president thought it was so on point that he started saying it that way because it kind of like revealed him in a certain way. So in that sense, you know, Pierre Carvey, the real H.W. Bush, um, <laughs> is is something like people would maybe buy a little bit more in terms of acting, right? There are people who can kind of kind of caricature things things so well that they kind of reveal what the real person is like in some way. Borges is applying that to literature. It's a hard question. I think what remains interesting about the short story, if it can be so so be called, to this day is that. It does still, even though it is emulation or imitation, he talks about the imitation of Christ being rewritten at the end too, that like the way it's described in these last pages that Soren's pointing out, it's as if he's reading it as a critic, as if um, the original Don Quixote was never written in some way, and that this is the real draft of Don Quixote, and that this has now supplanted it in the way that like in the well-known short story of Borges Tlanukbar, Orbis Tertius, that Tlan, by being written about and codified and written about whatever, in encyclopedias, like, takes over all of reality, that, like, this sort of supplants Cervantes' text. And so it's, it, like, it's emulation and imitation, but it becomes, like, an artistic act on its own, separate from it in a weird way, that you can't, like, it's it's super ambiguous and you can't parse those two out from each other if that makes sense like he as much as we want to say like he's going back to the 17th century and and writing something he's going back and forgetting years of history which he is doing Borges is ambiguously clear if that makes sense to say but he's not doing that also he's like keeping everything with him of his time and producing it in some way because Don Quixote is an accidental book and he could do without it because he's more of a Poe guy anyway. This is like a deliberate book and it has a purpose and that makes it more special uh, for this nameless critic. Can I give one more possibility? I like both of these possibilities a lot. I've been stewing over the last line of this story for a while now because it's on top of everything else. It's already a very strange story. And then he ends in such a strange place. You, you kind of briefly mentioned it, Friedrich, a minute ago. I'm going to read you a couple of parts of the last paragraph and then I'll end with the last sentence of, the, of it. He says, Menard perhaps without wishing to, has enriched by means of a new technique the hesitant and rudimentary art of reading. The technique is one of deliberate anachronism and erroneous attributions. This technique, with its infinite applications, urges us to run through the Odyssey as if it were written after the Aeneid. And then here's the final sentence, or the um, the final two sentences. This technique would fill the dullest books with adventure. Would not the attributing of the imitation of Christ to Louis Ferdinand Céline or James Joyce, be a sufficient renovation of its tenuous spiritual counsels? What a weird place to end the story. <laughs> but 
I've been I've been thinking over this a lot as I've read it this time around, and and, and here's the conclusion I've reached. It's almost like a moral adventure going on, and it makes me think a little bit about what Jesus says in the New Testament, where he says, like, there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one lost sheep that gets found than over the 99 who never leave. And that's kind of how I think about this last line. He's deliberately smashing together these two things that don't fit. The imitation of Christ, a a kind of Renaissance classic of spiritual devotion by Thomas Akempis, and then these two 20th century, very kind of blasphemous authors in some ways, depending on how you take them, Louis Ferdinand Céline, who is a... um, quite a guy, uh, or strange guy, uh, but but very kind of infamous for being very blasphemous and in your face and confrontational. And James Joyce, who, of course, you know, almost became a priest, Catholic priest, and then abandoned Catholicism. And so there's this wonderful sort of tension there, right? It seems ridiculous to ask these two men to write The Imitation of Christ, but it's almost like if they were somehow to accomplish the writing of The Imitation of Christ, that would be such a bigger achievement than Thomas Akempis you know, Renaissance mystic good guy writing the imitation of Christ. Like you want to challenge, get James Joyce to write the imitation of Christ and have it like mean something. Right. And so it's almost like this moral adventure that you're embarking on when you do this. Right. It's like to get somebody who is a terrible sinner to write a great work of spiritual devotion is a much cooler task than like some holy guy doing it. Like, that's the challenge here is like, it's almost like, a you know, you're talking before, Friedrich, about moral cultivation. It's like an act of such intense moral cultivation on the part of the author, in the case of Menard, to so fully be able to inhabit Cervantes's world, even though he's not Cervantes. It's that act of adventure that kind of adds the spice back into it. In some way, what I love about what you're saying is how it connects to Middlemarch, too, because if Middlemarch is all about the social web in which we we move and about how you're like enslaved by your your surroundings in some ways and your social circles and that you're produced by your history and the histories that like that preceded you and created you that this act as you're saying it is like an attempt to completely separate yourself from your history in order to produce something that's completely unlike you like an escape from history we always talk about like the wreckage of history in this podcast in this season at least james joyce and the nightmare of history that this is like a waking up from the nightmare of history because you're not yourself you're writing something that you would never write i don't know maybe carl has a different thought on this that's where my head goes sure yeah menard is the the wake from the nightmare of history to the dream of pure possibility or something if we're good for now with pierre menard um, let's move on to Library Babel, and then we can kind of fold back in as we need to back back to Pierre uh, Menard. So, so let's just start here. Like, what do you all make of this? Again, it's a story that's not really a story. It's like here's a description. It's almost like a tour guide leading you through the Library of Babel. Um, mm. But what do you? I mean, what do you make of this story, Carl? And you know, starting at, maybe in particular with the name of it, the Library of Babel instantly calls to mind some very troubling things, you know, but, but I mean, what do you make about the, what this story is trying to accomplish in its form and, and um, what is Borges getting at here? Well, it's, it's the, it's the one that really ties me to Kafka and Kafka's understanding is like very beautiful, difficult, gnomic parables often have, or his aphorisms often deal with like perspectives from infinity. And again, Borges is turning a certain idea on its head, like infinity since Aristotle is not actual, you know, it's out there. It's at the end of the real numbers somewhere. It's at the end of the expanding universe somewhere. As we get into the more modern 
cosmological view of you know the big bang and what's way way out there and you know maybe for like Zeno and Parmenides and people there's this trick of imagining and a localized small infinity between the real numbers somewhere but we don't tend to think about that but Borges is saying imagine we live at the end of the real numbers what does that look like I think a lot of his stories go kind of to that place of a paradox in space and time or an infinity that's very hard to imagine on the large scale and so we start in the middle kind of of a hexagonal structure that's infinitely expanding outward and we know that it is because the units of movement tell us that we just get to the same exact thing wherever we move and so it's right away locked in what infinity would look like and its difficulties and its its paradoxes and then he just kind of pushes you to ask is that what the shape of the universe is and what does that difficulty in determining the rules of what's locally around you how does that make you rethink how much of the unknown you've kind of mastered in our our own cosmology right you think you know that physics works a certain way and day follows night follows day and everything's pretty common the the laws of macrophysics are things you've got a grasp of but just imagining as as you know einstein did when he kind of developed relativity right imagining what it would be like to be in this library makes you all of a sudden stop and say wait what in fact is language what in fact does it mean to have some grasp of a total infinity in this in this language that he's talking about how real is this you know so i like it again i like it as a pick on you know these limits of real realism absolutely yeah good pick on limits of realism it's like we're in kasabin's library here and we're swirling it with his (laughs) thoughts unable to actually produce anything because there's too much going on i think to continue what carl is saying something i really appreciate about borges for all his fantastical elements and pushing things to the limits of of what we're able to even comprehend um, in our thinking that they return us to thinking about our reality and the way that we think about our own lives. And that's maybe a weird place to go with the library of Babel, but that's what I think of when I I read it, that it's about, I mean, it's about hermeneutics if you want to use a big word, but it's about just like how we read meaning in our lives and how we think about theology or belief. And if we're faced with something that seems infinite and, uh, and we only participate in a finite part of it, how do we decipher it? And that's the project of humanity so far, maybe in an in a, in a optimistic way, at least it's the project of humanity. And I love that he goes into that history. It begins as the sort of architectural tour, as, as we've talked about, and it becomes an historical discussion too about these monkish movements to find certain books, to produce certain books, or to shoe reading all together as something that can produce meaning and it becomes a question of like if we're if we're here in this thing that we don't understand how can we understand it and and it's kind of becomes like the kernel of why religions exist or something like that i love what you're hitting on here friedrich i think that one of the things i find so appealing about this story is even though it's not a story i mean there's no story here right but there's still an incredible creation of mood and the mood is this deep melancholy about what exists and it makes me think about you know there are certain people i'm not going to name names or anything but like certain people who kind of embrace 
books or like libraryness as a lifestyle brand. They're sort of like the I'm like a Hermione Granger. I'm just gonna go to the library or like Belle from Beauty and the Beast, where it's like, yeah, I love these big armchairs and these books everywhere and I'm going to organize them by color and it's the sense of like yeah I want this huge library but then like what do you do when you're actually confronted by all of that and then what they do is they like read John Grisham or whatever or like Danielle Steele that's that's their conception of what it is it's like books as this lifestyle brand and and what Borges is sort of doing in this story is kind of rubbing that in our face and like you oh yeah you like knowledge you're a nerd you're like the cute librarian nerd well think about this think about all the infinitude that's in front of you in this knowledge and like the result is this weird monastery system which is kind of like what the original you know libraries in the middle ages like where are they they're in monasteries they're with like these weird lonely guys right and then it's like everybody's committing suicide because they can't handle the infinitude of this library, the seeming indecipherability of it all. And so he's taking us to this like it's a really disturbing image of what the reading life is like in a lot of ways. And I can relate to that. Like I feel that when I think about what seems like the infinity of books that I have never re- read and I probably will never get around to reading. It fills me with a sense of melancholy, right? And then I kind of push it away and I just go do something else. But, you know, to sit with that feeling of melancholy, like knowledge as really as a burden, even as it's at the same time a possibility. I think we're so caught up a lot of times with like, knowledge is power. And it's like, it's awesome. But like, thinking about knowledge as a burden is is also a very important thing. And in some ways, maybe a very biblical idea as well, right? Knowledge itself is a, is a form of burden. I wonder if knowledge is the right word even in this one too, because it's like, this is, I'm just kind of spitballing off what you're saying. But like, part of the issue for the narrator is that it's not even about gathering knowledge. It's about trying to define like comprehensibility and correlations between texts. I mean, that's knowledge, but like, it's about like, there are 25 symbols, 22 letters and three symbols that produce meaning, but there are so many texts that don't even contain meaning. So why are those there? And what are Mm -hmm. they doing? And then there's another text that refutes those that don't contain meaning. And there are texts that are commenting on the refutations and it's, it becomes, yeah, about the inability to to read everything and process that knowledge but i think it's also about like the inability to to figure things out like what's going on in our existence so that's that's my dorm room way of saying that okay well i, I don't know if i can uh get to as bleak a place as either of you with respect to this story uh you're you're you know, our hermione carl you you can call me and if you need some help or you need some time off take a mental health day please but you know the, the last word of the story is hope i'll remind you well um, is it We'll get to that in a minute. And I read the story very positively, a little bit differently than both of y'all. I'm not negative. I'm just, I'm neutral in my uh, reading, I think. It sounds negative, but I'm not. It's it's also kind of, uh, again, Borges loves the weird monks, which I also love. So a bunch of weird monks that would never really exist, but nevertheless, they're like deeply monastic and kind of in a perfectly Borgesian way, like the ultimate monastic somehow because of their strictness to something that we really can't comprehend. He pushes through this this series of infinite possibilities to create a certain order in his solitude, and he's cheered by that elegant hope is the end of it. And so one way to think about it is imagine if all of existence were populated by every 
potential outcome. So this is very similar to like the multiple worlds interpretation of physics, right? Imagine that those were not counterpart worlds that could never actually causally influence each other, but that they all existed somehow. And they were like spilt marbles in a big floor where you can look at all of them at once. The point is not look at these ruins and despair or something. It's that like you could never not be a connection between some of those marbles. And if you have meaning, you've deleted like billions of the meaningless books, right? One of the eerie qualities of the story is like the the monks are in a way the books too. You are one of these books. The history of your life is one of these books that you'll just find on a shelf <laughs> that will have a certain level of meaning. It won't be the book that's, you know, A X A X A X A S space M L O. I'm gonna pronounce that one. <laughs> you will hopefully not be that book. So there's hope in that. I don't I don't see how there couldn't be. Imagine being Pierre Menard trying to be that book that we just <laughs> described. <laughs> to clarify what I'm fun. to clarify what I'm I'm not saying there's dis, I'm not talking about despair in my point of view or or hope. I'm just saying that like it's a metonym as Soren said early on, a metonym for the universe and that it's everyone is searching for these meanings. And the monks aren't realistic, but they are hyper realistic in my mind of, of as well what has happened in theological in monasteries and theological research that that all of these theories become deeply weird when you get into them because people are arguing about different ways that existence can or cannot happen and things that are Mm -hmm. contradictory can coexist. And I agree with you that there is some hope at the end, but but what I appreciate about it is just that it's, it's showing how you interpret reality as a struggle. That's it. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, so if I can push back for just for a minute, I'll, I'll try not to make us too gloomy here. I feel like this is like a role reversal here. I'm the gloomy one for once, but I do feel like there's something. I understand what you're saying, Carl, about there being hope, but doesn't that just make it worse in some ways? Right. I think about Pandora's box. I love to tell my students, you know, like you think you know about Pandora's box, but actually you completely misunderstand the story of Pandora's box, right? Because the last thing out of it is hope, and that's the worst thing possible right? It's not some cheery like, oh, we've got hope at the end. It's like, no, now you're doomed to have hope on top of all this other crap. And once again, you are Bane. (laughs) But like, this is what's going on, right? It's like, yes, Carl, you're absolutely right. Like somewhere out there in the library is the story of your life, but good luck ever finding it, you dummy, right? (laughs) Like you're going to wander your whole life like a ghost looking for the the meaning of your life through this library and you're just never going to find there's no dewey decimal system for the library of babel right no no see that's where you're wrong that's where you're totally wrong <laughs> so he ends with order and the hope in the the order and in, in mine it, it's the library is unlimited but periodic and so again i'm not up to snuff i haven't been practicing my math enough lately so i'll probably get this a little bit wrong but we're going to go to the math for a second so the point is that there are in fact orders of infinity the aleph which is a key borgesian title is also the symbol of different orders of infinity so as mathematicians understood at the end of the 19th century there are not you know when you're a kid on the playground infinity oh infinity plus one well there is no infinity plus one there is in fact different levels of infinity there's aleph null aleph one etc aleph aleph and on and on dizzying 
orders of infinities themselves. And so you can still be placed with respect to which infinity you're in. And there are still mathematical rules that apply to the kind of structure you're in, even if it's an infinite structure. And that's the hope at the end. It's, it's far, it would be, it would be Soren's universe if we could divide by zero at the end and the rules of mathematics have broken down, but not so. So there is a, there's a mathematical key to this mythology. But, but what good does that do us? This is what he says. Yes, I, I admit, he does say the library is limitless and periodic. And then what does he say? He says, if an eternal voyager were to traverse it in any direction, he would find, after many centuries, that the same volumes are repeated in the same disorder, which, repeated, would constitute an order, order itself. What good does that do us? My solitude is cheered by that elegant hope. That's the final line. Yeah, you cut that out. No, my solitude rejoices in this elegant hope. That's a yes. no, that's a terrible asterisk footnote. Asterisk footnote, by the way. Yes. Right? Right. Which repeated would constitute an order is a conditional statement, by the way. So I'm not so sure about that. But beyond that. Are you an eternal? Sorry, Carl. Are you an eternal voyager? Maybe you are. Actually, <laughs> if any, if any yeah. of the three of us are um, an eternal, the voyager. dream of a ridiculous man. Going back to Dostoevsky, really gets to this point too. Do you know that? I don't know, do you know that story. That, no. oh, okay, well, it's like a utopia, dystopia, but it's like the journey. And and Dostoevsky brings this up as a thought experiment. The person who would journey for hundreds of years just to regain something, just to make an a, amend or atonement, is it worth it? all of that journeying it's a point about the bleakness of what infinity looks like if you're caught in it i give you that but it's not a point about and at the end there's hope which is worse than all the other things <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a it's a point about hey if it's like the eternal return it's it's a nietzschean point if you're on a certain path that must repeat infinitely would you choose it and don't make your life meaningful because there's a singular aspect to each choice you've made decide which values you value and choose them as values in each of your acts whether you make them once or forever that's kind of the point all right i'll tentatively buy that <laughs> i would just add that i think for borges he's saying you are caught in the infinite that's your existence this is a, a wild place this story but like it parallels your existence and your attempts to read your world. If Borges were rewriting Mary Oliver, he'd say, what is it that you plan to do with this infinitely multiplicitous, wondrous life of yours? <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we wrap up on these, I do want to make one formal point since we are a podcast that prides ourselves on literary formalism to some degree, which is to think about the main literary device that he's using in both of these stories to some degree. I think it's most noticeable maybe here in the Library of Babel, which is this use of footnotes. As uh, Friedrich was kind of hinting at before, yes, the last line is, my solitude rejoices in this elegant hope, but then bam, on the page, there's an asterisk and we go down to a footnote. And there's like five or six footnotes in, through the course of this story where he's kind of giving us this um, additional information. This last one is maybe the most interesting because he just gives us as some tossed off information. Oh yeah, some people think all this library is just contained in one infinitely 
big book, but it's infinitely small because all the pages are so small and you go through them and it's like everything is perfectly symmetrical. And then this is the actual last line of the story. The inconceivable central leaf would have no reverse, which is a great place to end. But I'm wondering what you Proving that it's not in fact the end and that there is no end because it's an infinite structure. Exactly. So, So I'm wondering what you all make of the footnote as a potential key to understanding Borges' writing, because I, I do think it's incredibly important to him as a writer, the idea of the footnote as a formal device. And he's writing, of course, long, long before David Foster Wallace, uh, another famous practitioner of the footnote. But what do you want to make of Bor- the Borgesian footnote and what it's doing in his stories and how it might, in fact, point us to an underlying logic or structure to his writings? So Borges, I think part of what makes him, for me, genuinely postmodern is he kind of understands that there's this project going on, and, and he talks about logic and math in both of these stories, and he references like Bertrand Russell, the Principia Mathematica, as something Borges would kind of been interested in, this grand project of a logician to define in the very short 300 pages or so that 2 plus 2 equals 4 with a perfect logical precision. You know, that's the beginning of... Uh, Russell and Whitehead's Principia is in, extremely invested in a kind of perfectly self-ordered, logical, from its bootstraps, zero to infinity, perfect argument. He's kind of understands pretty early, especially for a, a literary person, that that project is doomed and that self-reference will never escape paradox into some sort of perfect logical order. And so... He uses self-reference in a lot of ways, but especially with his footnotes, to undercut this idea that self-reference will give us more order, that it will give us higher logic, that it will give us perfect axioms for mathematics or something. It won't give us that. It will instead bury us further into our paradoxes and give us more like vertigo, intellectual vertigo. So that's kind of what I think of. Yeah, I, I have the sense that the footnote meant to cite and clarify normally is in this instance only further confounding and, and is meant to do so that these are in both in, in both these stories at least the footnotes are they're providing color but they're also sort of breaking out of the contained text as carl was saying breaking out of the perfect organized thing and and showing that there's always more underneath it and more that's rupturing through the surface or something like that what about you, Soren? Thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think those are, those are those are both good thoughts about it. I, I'm returning also as a, maybe a closer here to, to something he says in Pierre Menard as he's talking about what exactly this whole project means. And maybe this is a good place to end. He says, I have thought that it is legitimate to consider the final Don Quixote as a kind of palimpsest in which should appear traces, tenuous but not undecipherable, of the previous handwriting of our friend. Unfortunately, only a second Pierre Menard, inverting the work of the former, could exhume and resuscitate these Troys. And so I think the idea of a palimpsest, which um, readers, if you're not familiar, is is basically like a writing that's been written over, right? So like maybe the easiest thing to think about here would be like if you make a carbon copy, you know, like at the bank or something and you have that piece of paper that's underneath and then like you were to write over that or something and use it again as a sketch pad or something like there's that element of palimpsest there of a layering of on top of things or like in the olden days if you're old enough readers to remember this when you had a vhs tape 
and it was like you wanted to record Star Trek, but your mom's had ice skating on the VHS, right? Or whatever, like you'd have to record over it and that would in some ways create a palimpsest. Maybe I don't know how VHS, VHS tapes work. I don't think that's quite right, but you know, think about it that way, right? Where you have those layers that are etched in there, right? Eternally speaking. And and so I think that takes us back nicely to our thoughts about history here, right? Which is that, you know, history itself is a palimpsest. We talked about that when we were thinking about Rome in Middlemarch or um, again in the mayor of Casterbridge where like these Roman artifacts are just jutting out of the ground, right? But people are living their normal British lives around them. Writing too is a sort of palimpsest. And we, we might say that as critics writing about literature, we, we are writing on top of the things that we have written about. But even as, you know, all three of us are to some degree writers of creative writing fiction, when we write fiction, you know, inevitably we're writing on top of people who have, you know, that we have read and have come before us. And so so there is that sort of element of building in layers here, right? It's like making up a croissant, right? You have to like roll it out and put more butter in and like roll it out again and laminate it over and over again to get that rich butteriness, flakiness, right? I think there's something to that here, right? It's like part of what makes Borges special and magnetic as a writer is his ability, as Carl pointed out at the beginning of this episode, I thought this was so good, Carl, and I'm going to bring us back there to close, that he he packs so much into such a small space, all of these references to all this different stuff, most of which like I've never read, right? I don't know what's going on, but there's the way he assembles it is so attractive and so magnetic that it draws you in and it makes you think like, there's more going on here than I can understand. And I can return to this story over and over again, as I certainly have throughout my life. Like, I can return to the Library of Babel, and it never goes stale. There's always something new to discover in it. And so I think that's part of what's going on, even at the level of form. is like he's trying to pack in as much as possible in a way that makes it feel rich and layered and not dusty or stale. I think that's a pretty good place to stop for now. We'll come back next time. We've got one more episode left in season two. It's a good one to go out on. I'm excited to talk about it. It's Friedrich's last pick. It is the novel, question mark, The Rings of Saturn by W.G. Sebald. We're going to come back and talk about it. It's got, I think it's going to put a nice bow on this entire season for us. Um, So we're going to come back and talk about that next time. Until then, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, those Russians. It appears to be of Tuscan design, I would say, early 12th century. I knew it was old, you fool. Let me praise you. You're an idiot. A complete and total idiot. How does it feel? What is this, 12th century Tuscan? Nice. I think that's him. That's Bowman. Oh. Well, you're a tall drink of water, and I just love moisture. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Gammy. Gammy Num Num. Devlin Bowman. Don't be ashamed of your feelings. Your desires are perfectly normal, I assure you. What desires? Well, guess what, Backstreet Boy? This is one girl scout that isn't content to be the Malcolm in your middle.
This is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. <laughs> you shut up.